seated. Our New Testament reading uh, for this Sunday in the season of Easter comes from the book of Revelation. kind of bounces all around chapter 21 and 22, so let me uh, read that for us. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates, its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. All right, Jameson, come and bring us God's word. The gospel lesson this afternoon comes to us from the good news according to St. John, the 14th chapter. I'm actually going to start in verse 18. This is in the context of Jesus' final conversation with his disciples at the Last Supper the night before he was crucified, and he's been warning them about that. And so we pick up in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, but not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not like the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the gospel of our Lord. Pray with me briefly. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this gospel, for this true and trustworthy account of your work in the world through Jesus. We pray now that you would illuminate each one of us by the power of your presence and your Holy Spirit, that you would speak tenderly and truthfully to each conscience in this room to give us what we need today for life and health and salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. For those of you who actually don't know me, I'm going to save you some trouble in the social afterwards. It's, it's, it is a great honor to be here with you. It's also quite humbling um, to know that you guys are, are considering your future and praying and waiting and discussing and seeing if that future might be along with us uh, over at Clinton Hill. Uh, it's weighty, it's beautiful, it's heavy, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will lead you just as he intends to. Uh, but part of that is getting to know one another, and for those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm going to do this now so I don't have to do it over here uh, at the social gathering, which is to ask the two questions everyone asks the first time they meet someone, okay? This doesn't ever go well for me in New York City uh, in normal parties. I think it would, be, it would play better here in this room with you guys than it does at a normal cocktail party. But it goes something like this, right? You have one of two questions. The first one is, so what do you do? Right now, every time I prepare to answer this truthfully, I know that the jukebox in the corner of every apartment is gonna is gonna stop. Uh, the record's gonna scratch, and everyone's gonna be like, <laughs> "What, pastor?" So I have I have some things I do to get around that in the room. Uh, sometimes I go with the outlandish answer. So they're like, "What do you do for a living? What do you do? What are you up to?" And I'll say something like a rock star or a race car driver. Or sometimes I feel like being less outlandish and fake, and I try to think of something absurd. Absurd. So I could say, well, I wash dogs for a living. I'm a dog washer. You haven't heard of that? It makes a lot of money. You know, or you could tell them that your job is to clean the teeth of all the sharks at the aquarium in Coney Island. It's a difficult job, but somebody has to do it, right? Uh, my favorite, the one I actually use the most, is not outlandish or absurd. It's actually in order to terrify them. And so what I do is this. People will say, what do you do for a living? And I say, ah, well, I audit low-income families for the IRS. And they go, I say, man, we got to get every penny, you know what I mean, right? Every penny counts, right? And right when they're horrified, I go, it's not that bad, I'm just a pastor. Hey, right? So then it's like, okay, it would have been the worst thing, but now it's not the worst thing. It's okay. So that's how I get through what do you do. And the other one, the second question you probably can guess in your own minds is, where are you from? I also have a trouble, trouble answering this question, because I could answer everywhere. I could answer nowhere, really. Depends on your perspective. If someone's from Texas or nearby, I could say, hey, yeah, I'm from Texas. I lived there for a long time. Did some, did some youth time there. Or I could say Washington State. That's where all my family's from. You're from the Northwest? Okay. And I'll try to talk to you about that or any of the other uh, half a dozen places I lived or visited with my dad when he was in the military. I often will just say, look, I've lived in New York City longer than I've lived anywhere in my entire life, so I guess I'm from here. I don't really know. 
Now, I don't know, you might have a more clear answer than me to where you're from, the question of where you're from. Uh, That might be more important and instrumental in your life. Uh, It might still operate in some way as like helping you navigate your identity, where you're from, who you're supposed to be and live up to, where you're headed, what it means to be you. Perhaps that's true of you, but I would argue that for most of us, that is actually becoming less and less true. Our homeland, it could be another country. It could be a state in the United States. The place that we call home exerts less and less power over our lives as we move through globalization. And this has a lot to do with the era that we're living in. Because of globalization, people move all the time, all over the world. Because of capitalism, we follow where the money is, where we can get, where our money, we can get the best paycheck, where it can stretch the furthest. And so we're all just moving all of the time. We don't have as deep roots in the places maybe as people used to have. And of course, because of immigration or because of uh, refugee situations, whether that be in Africa or Ukraine, uh, people are, are sometimes violently or politically taken from their homes and they become refugees in new places. Perhaps most of you here, um, some of you may have grown up in New York City, but, uh, but many of us didn't in the city. And so you find yourself away from extended family at times. And so you know this feeling of, uh, yeah, I'm kind of from here, but I don't know what that means anymore. What is home? You know, you go home and it's not the same anyways if you do go there. And New York City has been this way for a long time. New York City has almost always been a city of immigrants, of migrants coming and then often moving through. The Statue of Liberty, of course, is an icon of welcome to a new homeland for generation after generation of pilgrims. We know what it means here to be in this place and to try to make it a home, to make it a new home, away from your former home. Brooklyn has always been a place for people like us, for people that are on the move, for migrants, for strivers, for the transient. And there's much good to this, as you know, and experience. You encounter other cultures and other individuals, these unique people made uniquely in in God's creation, uh, in His image, in some special way that only they can share, and then their culture that they share with you. And we get this rich melting pot of humanity, and it's lovely in so many ways, but it's also got a lot of downsides too, doesn't it? You experience loss as people move in and move on. You begin to wonder if you have any roots. Is there anything holding me down here? Or am I rootless? You know what it means to be lonely. To invest in relationship after relationship and to see it move on. In a sense, to wonder, is this ever going to feel like home? Or am I just kind of homeless? Maybe you felt like this. I felt this way a lot, 16 years now, trying to build a church family in a community in Brooklyn. It's often felt like you were, got some land, were trying to build a home or perhaps renovate an old home. And there you are doing all the necessary work and it's laborious to get it fixed up so that people can move in, maybe add a wing so that others can come in and you can build this extended family and you can put down roots and you can have a home. But meanwhile, there's enough work to do with that and it's costly and it takes a lot of sacrifice. But at the same time, it feels like you're doing it in the midst of this ongoing hurricane. It just keeps tearing things down and you put it back up and it's just chaos all around you and that hurricane is just transience and movement all around you all the time. Greg Thompson, who some of you may remember, did a retreat for us years and years ago as a a friend and mentor of uh, the pastors here. 
in a talk that maybe they'll choose to send you in the newsletter this week, I'm going to send it to the Clinton Hill folks, called The Hospitality of God. He argues this. I love this phrase. He's kind of getting at the way that we understand ourselves to live in a secular age. And he says a lot of people, especially Christians or people of faith, tend to have kind of an embattled uh, view of the secular age and to think, oh, there's like this some nefarious, godless, deep state out there, and it's, it's pulling all the strings to eradicate my way of life. And he argues that actually the chief characteristic of the secular age is not militant coherence. It's not what I just described. He said the chief characteristic of our age is actually the shared experience of homelessness. That everyone in globalism and capitalism and movement, small town, city, we all are more and more experiencing what it means to not know what home is. More and more people don't feel at home in their cities. They don't feel at home in their extended families. They don't feel at home in their houses with their nearest family unit. Sometimes we don't feel at home in our own skin. We look at our bodies in the mirror and we don't like what we see and it doesn't feel like it comports with who we understand ourselves to be inside. I think Greg is profound and largely correct when he says that the chief characteristic of our age is the sense of homelessness. Again, it could be literal and material. Some people are actually without shelter. It could be this idea of your homeland that I've been describing. Where are you from, Jameson? I, I don't know. It could be communal or relational. You ask the question, like, who do I really belong to? Like, who are my people? They may not be my blood family, but who's my family? Like, who's my tribe? Who's got me? Who's with me? Where do I fit in and belong with people that are there for me for the long haul? And I think all these, sense of, all these different senses of feeling homeless actually have their root in a deeper sense of homelessness. And that is what we'll call the spiritual. See, there's something deep within us that feels homeless and restless and unrooted and wandering or overlooked. It feels alone and lost. And I think that this is because, as the Scriptures tell us in Genesis 1 and 2, this world, the one that we're walking about in that they've built this beautiful building on top of that you will go and drive around in or bike in and sweat a little bit later, and this world was made by God to be our home. And you can go read Genesis 1 and 2 and see what that was like for it to be our home. For God to be there in the center walking and talking and dwelling with His people, His children, Adam and Eve, naked and unashamed like children, playing with this dignity to cultivate and to see fruit come from the labor of their hands and from this creation so that everything flourished and served one another, this picture of shalom of you and me, people like us, at home, here, in Shalom. But of course, ever since Genesis 3, when we decided that we didn't want God to be the center of this home that He made. We didn't want Him telling us how it was supposed to go or the family rules. And we ran away from Him. Ever since then, we have been experiencing deep homelessness, generation after generation dislocated, wandering, in danger from peril, sword, drought, famine, flood, war. 
We were meant to be at home here with God, with one another, and with ourselves, and with the whole created order, to be perfectly at home in our skin and in our life, moment by moment, not even worrying about tomorrow, but day by day. But instead, for some dark reason, we rarely feel at home. The writer Walker Percy described this as a malaise, a modern malaise, which is a word for kind of sickness. He says it this way, The main emotion of the adult Northeastern American who has had all the advantages of wealth, education, and culture is simply disappointment. The question might be, even when everything appears to be working to our advantage, why can we still feel disappointed, displaced, alienated? And I would say it's because we are not where we are meant to be. We are not truly dwelling in our ultimate home. That's why I have this biblical metaphor that is a good metaphor, but it's, it's, a, it's a concession to our condition, and that is this, that God's people have always been pilgrims. They've been wanderers. They've been called resident migrants. We belong to this earth, and yet we are wandering and traveling, looking for a final home on the horizon. And see, I think the first key to handling our displacement, our homelessness, is actually embracing that this is fundamental to a life of faith. To not just skip over it and say, well, if I just can finally own a brownstone, if I could do that, I'd finally feel at home in New York City. If I could just find that one other couple friends or people or roommates that would just, I know they're going to be here for 15, 20 years, then I can rest, you know. If I just this thing, I'll finally feel at home here. If I could just lose this much weight or do such and such to my body, I would finally feel at home as me. See, we're actually not meant to feel at home here as things are. In their brokenness, in the way that we try to make them be ultimate rather than just temporary goods or non-ultimate goods. We have to live with the sense of homelessness, to know that it is part of what puts a holy discontent within us. It is part of what keeps us on the move. And I, might, I mean, you might literally live here for the rest of your life in New York City, but within you there's this discontent, this, this homing beacon that God has put in you that says, there is something more. I'm not going to rest. I'm not going to settle, literally or metaphorically, for this life as it is. There must be more. I'm going to hunger and thirst for something beyond just what I have here in this house, and in this community. Because as long as God is not fully at home yet in all of our hearts and communities, then we are still not all the way home. And so the first move is just to embrace this. As Jesus is saying to them, and we'll get into this, Jesus has been with them. He's been walking with them, wandering as pilgrims throughout greater Israel. For three years, he's made them feel at home no matter what danger from storm-tossed seas to enemies to sneaky little religious leaders trying to uh, accuse them. Whatever they've done, he has protected them. He's walked with them. He's taught them. He's healed people around them and their family and friends. And here he says, guess what? I'm leaving. And they think to themselves, no way. You're the Messiah. 
we've read the whole Bible. We know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to bring God's presence back into this temple right here so that God's people can go back and experience his Shekinah glory again. And you're supposed to kick the butts of all those Romans and get them out of here so that we can live freely as God taught us to live according to the Torah. And you're supposed to set us up as a light to the nations so we can sit here in all of our glory and let all the nations walk through and experience God. This is meant to be our home. And he instead talks about, well, I'm going to a cross. I'm going to go to a tomb in this earth. They're going to put thorns of the curse from the ground on my forehead. I'll be gone for three days, and then I'll rise again. And even then, I have more work to do. I'm going to be with my father. I'm going away. And so they're experiencing dislocation. Their comfort, their security, their home, their guide is about to leave them. They're going to be distraught and alone, left behind with no one to care for them. And so he gives them good news in this final conversation. I want to pull out a few things from it as I read a few verses to you again. Here in this final dinner conversation with them as they face the impending departure of their friend, elder brother, guide, Messiah, the presence of God himself as they understand it, Jesus. He gives them some good news to trust in as he is about to depart from them. And the first is this. He wants them, and by extension us, to know that even in his real or felt absence, when God is distant, when you feel alone, when you don't know what's going on, when you are or feel homeless in some sense in this world, he wants you to know that even then, right then, especially then and always, you are members of a royal family, a cosmic eternal royal family where no one in that family dies or goes away or abandons you. Verse 18, he says to them, yeah, I'm leaving. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. You know what it means to be an orphan or at least the idea of it you've seen in movies. To be without a family, to be without a home, to be without a future and therefore a hope. And because you have no future and hope and no family and no home, you have no security now. It's just to be constantly displaced like some detritus floating on the water, wherever direction. He says, I'm not going to leave you like that. I'm not leaving you as orphans. Just a little while... And it's true, the world won't see me anymore. But you, you will see me. You're going to have eyes to see me. And because I'm actually alive, you will live too. And when that day comes, you're going to know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself. I will make myself known to that person. We are not orphans, but children of a loving father and brother, united to him, to them, by love. He talks about it in here. If you love, you belong to me, and you belong to the Father. You're a part of the family. We love you. 
As soon as you love us back a tiny bit, we are knit together. You are a part of the family. We saw this baptism. It is secured by the promise of God as if He had torn torn open this roof and come down by the power of His Spirit and rested upon and Himself had shown up in some manifestation of physical glory and said the words, You belong to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by faith, that is what happened to Simone. It's what happened to you. You belong to this cosmic royal family and no one can take away your belonging, your status, your inheritance. I don't know who you understand God to be when you think of Him. If you think of Him fundamentally as a judge or a therapist or a healer or a sacrifice or a hero to emulate. And He shows up as all of those things at some point in the Scripture, but hear this, in all of those analogies or pictures or roles, those are post-Genesis 3 actions of God. They're roles He takes upon Himself to bring us back to Him. He is not fundamentally in His character just a judge or even a healer because originally there was nothing to heal. He is fundamentally, from beginning to end, from before the first page of Scriptures until after the ones that we have printed before us. A host. He is a host. A society of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this beautiful community, this family, unbroken, serving and giving and loving and praising and fruitful, said this isn't enough. Let's share this bliss with all sorts of things. And so he created this world and filled it with shalom, as we've heard. Filled it with people. He is a host. That is fundamental to the character of God. That he intends to host you because you are a part of his family. That no matter where you go, I want to dig this out for the next few minutes or sort of dig into it for the next few minutes. Wherever you go, whatever you're experiencing, the the truth is, is that God is hosting you. He is protecting you. He has made you a part of His family because He loves you. Everything has been made in and by and for His love, and everything matters. Love is in whom we live and dwell and to whom we are journeying. It is our destination. And this matters so much because one of the deepest desires of the human heart is actually to belong. We long to form relationships and to be a part of community, and you know this. We know it intuitively. But scientists and sociologists have been confirming through countless studies in the past few decades precisely this, that we are designed, we are made, or they might say evolved, whatever language they would use. Here we find ourselves, and if you study us, we are created for community. Relative to our body size, we have larger brains than any other creature on earth. Especially Jameson Galt. Mine is a huge brain. It's crazy big. I'm just kidding. Neuroscientists have discovered that the primary purpose of these large brains that we have is social interaction. That is, when we're not concentrating on a math problem or something at work or making dinner, that primarily our brains go about thinking about other people's thoughts or feelings and goals or how we're, we are in relationship with someone close to us or a friend, or a fight. And some economists have even put a price tag on our relationships. 
According to an article in The Atlantic, if you volunteer at least once a week, the increase to your happiness is like moving from a yearly income of $20,000 to $75,000. Definitive proof that you should stop working for that raise and just come, you know, serve at church more often, right? You'll be wealthy, at least in heart. If you have a friend that you see on most days, it's like earning $100,000 more each year, they've studied. We are social animals. We have a basic need to belong to a group and to form relationships, and it's a big part of why we do church. Whom do I belong to? Who is my family? And the answer we're given here is that the ultimate answer that you must give is I belong to God, not just to the Galt clan or whatever. I belong to God and I'm beloved by Him. This is my family. Wherever I go, no matter how alone I am at the moment, I belong to this wandering pilgrim people that is beloved by God. And this family, as we've said, is on pilgrimage. We know the destination. Brian read it to us in Revelation. It is Genesis 1 and 2, and yet filtered through history and God's salvation and redemption until He makes everything His home, until from shore to shore there is nowhere that is distant or away or alone from the presence and love of God Himself, where all things are filled with His knowledge and His presence and His love again and again. Each one of us, having been made room, every tear and every sin and every curse and every form of enmity and hate, Removed. This is our destination. The Bible talks about it as a mansion with many rooms, a new Eden, a garden city, a new heavens and a new earth, where we have resurrected bodies, where everything is made new, restored, purified, and made for everlasting life. This is our destination. This is the home we are to only the only one we are to settle for, and we are not there yet. We often forget our homeland. We try to settle. And so what happens when momentarily we lose our way? We forget that this is the home God has designed for us, to be fully in His presence finally, to be fully at peace with everyone around us, to be fully content and serving and cultivating and blessed by the creation itself. And to feel at home in your own skin, the sense of well-being and shalom. This is your ultimate home, but what happens when you lose the way? And Jesus has more good news. In verse 26, the way I phrase it is that he is letting them know you're not just a member of a family. You not just have this homeland far off in the future distance. But as you're on pilgrimage, you will be doted upon. You will be guided. You will be trained to take the reins, if you will by my helper. Verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he will bring to your remembrance everything I've said to you. Part of the reason I don't know where I'm from is I was a military brat, so we moved around a lot. But then my parents split up and so my dad moved and he was often overseas while I was stranded in rural Texas with my mom and brother. Uh, This was pre-internet uh, it was pre-cell phone, we used landlines, and calling a place like South Korea, for example, or Panama, was extremely expensive and cost prohibitive. Prohibitive. So my dad mostly wrote letters to me, and I loved getting those letters. Letters from my dad where I learned what he was interested in, get a reminder of what he's like, what he's up to, get news about what's going on, and it was lovely. 
But you know what I wanted every time I got a letter or every time there was something special going on in my life and he wasn't there and I'd pull out the letter maybe and read it or I'd just think about him? You know what I wanted more than a letter? I wanted my dad. I wanted his presence with me. And I think it's so easy as a Christian to think of God like this, that he's far off somewhere. You're kind of making do on your own in the world, but he's written you a book of letters, and you can read the letters, and you can use your intellect to understand them better, and then you can use your willpower to sort of white-knuckle, uh, obey it, and put it into action, and then things will go well with you, and you might find your way to the end with him. But what if the power of God is not in our willpower or our brain or our intellect? What if it's not merely in some words on a page? What if the actual power of God himself is in his personal presence? His personal presence to come as a helper and a guide to walk with you, next to you, and to explain his letters to you, explain to you in his own words and words that you can understand where you are, what's next, how you're doing, how to keep going to remind you you're part of the family, to remind you your destination, to encourage you and to help you take the next step? What if the power of God is his personal presence and what if he's given it through the Holy Spirit? Not just general guidance for the world, but intimate guidance from God himself for you, each one of you, and whatever you face this week that you're terrified of. The questions that you don't know the answers to. What if you have the Holy Spirit, God himself, a member of this Trinity, Christ's own Spirit, to speak to you, to remind you, to encourage you, to be your personal tutor, to be your compass. I called it a homing beacon earlier. Yes, but that compass shows you that true north, the way to go, is love of God and love of neighbor. And he has placed that love of God and love of neighbor in your heart by grace through faith. See, this is the power of God. Jesus promises, it's better for you that I go away. Right now, everyone has to come from wherever they are in the world. It could have been from ancient Gaul. It could have been from over there in Rome. It could have been from all these different places. If they wanted to hear from God in this upper room, they would have had to come to that room and sit down next to Jesus with his cells and his flesh and blood and hear him with his vocal cords talk. And he's saying, it is better for you and for the world if I go away because when I go away, I'm sending my spirit and we're going global and we're going intimate. There is no barrier. There is no limitation to the intimate power and persuasion and love of God now when I send the Spirit. We're going global, friends, and deep. And this is the last piece of good news. It's short. We are not just being prepared for the home that awaits us. We are not just being walked in or near with the presence of God. We even now today, friends, and I mean this, you are being made right now God's home. You are God's home. Listen to verses 16 and 23. Jesus says, I'll ask the Father. He'll give you another helper to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. If you love me, my Father will love you, and we will come together, and we will make our home in you. You're going to face a lot of things this week. You're going to feel alone. 
You're going to look in the mirror sometimes and not like what you see. You're going to make a mistake that feels like you can't get past it and you're ashamed of it. You don't want it to get out to more people than already know. You're going to feel all sorts of things. You're going to wonder if friends even think about you. Why didn't they call you back? You're going to feel all sorts of things that make you feel homeless in the world. And in that moment this week, I want you to believe Jesus, the Christ, who says to you, I live in your body. I am here. Listen to me. You are my beloved. There is nowhere you can go. Go to the deepest cave. I am there with you, inside of you. I've made you my home. And that means that wherever you go this week, you are the presence of God to other people. That's why Jesus says you go out here and you meet a homeless person, look them in the eyes. That is the Christ. I am in the least of these. Whatever you've done to them, you've done to me. Whatever you do to one another, as you eat pizza and you encourage one another and you shake hands and you pass the peace and you hang out and you go and serve this week, you are extending, you are being a host, you're inviting people into the presence of God and they, you. And that's why he says, I'm leaving, but I'm leaving you with peace. Not just the absence of conflict, shalom, that's what that word means. My shalom, I leave you. My shalom, I give to you. After his resurrection, he breathes it into them, he says. Oh, not like the world gives. There's no scarcity here. I give abundantly. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. You are my home now. I am with you. And so as you wander this world, friends, as you feel a sense of homelessness, as you face a fork in the path as a congregation, I trust the Holy Spirit to speak to each one of you and to you as a congregation and to lead you. Just let me encourage you to trust God in you speaking and let His love be what He speaks, His words to you as a congregation and as individuals. What leads to more love of Him? What leads to more love of neighbor? What helps you to be a better host? And if you want to do these things for our neighbors, and we do, then you will need to keep coming home to God again and again yourself. Both the presence within you, but as we come together as a church in word and sacrament and feast and the story, the more that you practice being a guest, the more that you will learn to be a host to others. We share this inheritance. We share this future, but we share this home now. And so I close with this word from Jesus. It says, I give you a new commandment as I go. Love one another. Just like I loved you, love one another. And this is how everyone's going to know that you belong to me if you have love for one another. May God's love make a home in your hearts today, this day, and forever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me invite you to respond to the sermon message and to all the passages we've heard by joyfully giving.